when we read stories like what, like the book of Jonah, it tends to shock our modern sensibilities because Joseph's mission is to proclaim to the people of Nineveh that they are going to be destroyed. For a lot of us as modern readers of scripture, that does not sit well with us, that God would do something like that, that God could do something so bloodthirsty as to send judgment upon and to destroy an entire city doesn't sit right with us. And Jonah, his message, when we heard Jonah 3 verse 4, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all he says. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown as he walks through the city. Excuse me. Notice what's missing here in his proclamation. 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no dot, dot, dot. What is that called? Not an ampersand. I can't remember what the technical term for that is. There's no dot, dot, dot. So turn to the Lord and he will relent and forgive you. There's nothing of that in Jonah's message. And there's nothing of that in the message that God gives Jonah to proclaim to this city. The only person who even mentions repentance is the king of Nineveh. And he says that in response to Jonah's message. And so his response is, if we turn to the Lord in sackcloth and in ashes, maybe we will be spared. Maybe. This brings up a difficulty for us, brothers and sisters, because sometimes when people read the Old Testament, they see what appears to be a difference between God as revealed in the Old Testament and God as revealed in the New Testament. Some go so far to say, it's not even the same God. Others, in order to try and make sense of passages like what we read in Jonah about God bringing destruction upon a city, they may try to make sense of it by saying something like, well, that's how God was back then. In the old days, in the, 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 the faraway time, back in the day, that's how God was. But God... He's not like that anymore. Now he's like this. This was God. This God over here is angry and wrathful. But now this God over here is different. Have you ever heard that before? To try to explain difficult texts like this? I have. Others try to dissolve this tension between the God of love and the God of of judgment in the Old Testament by saying the people who wrote the Old Testament didn't understand what God was trying to tell them. How condescending. (laughs) In other words, God was trying to get something across, but in our limited human understanding, because when we encounter the divine, when we encounter God, we will get things wrong. And those things they got wrong were recorded and written down, and that's what was passed down to us in the Scripture So it was basically them misunderstanding what God was saying. God wasn't actually saying that these people should be destroyed. Like when we read in the the passages in Joshua uh, and other things, there's really good, uh, well, we don't have time to get into that tonight. I could talk all night about that. And I know you're like, we've had a long day. We ate soup. We we want to pray and go home, (laughs) please. So you won't get into it. But what I will say is this, that those ways of looking at the God 
looking at God as revealed in the Old Testament and New Testament, those ways are incorrect. The sentiment behind it may be good, right? We want, we want the God of love as revealed in Jesus Christ, but we don't want the God of anger and wrath and judgment in the Old Testament. We don't want that. We don't know how to live with that tension, so we have to try to do everything we can to explain it away. So how do we then reconcile that tension, right? That God is going to destroy a whole city of people versus the God as revealed in Jesus Christ who calls us to love one another and to love our enemies. What's up with God's anger? So we're going to talk a little bit about that this evening. There is a, a, a Jewish scholar and theologian whose works are very good. And I love his point of view on the anger of God in his book on the prophets. His name was Abraham Heschel. And I think that he has highlighted something about God's anger in the Old Testament that we often overlook or that we miss. He says that God's anger in the Old Testament and always contingent upon something. In other words, there's no anger for just for the sake of being angry. When we see God's anger directed in the Old Testament, it's not just because he feels like being angry. God is not, in the Old Testament, a teenager who really doesn't want to listen to his parents, so he's going to kick up a fuss. Like today, now Isaac is doing this thing now. When I say, Isaac, don't knock that chair over. He goes like this. He stamps his feet and he goes, ah! And he gets angry. So I have to get down on my knee, and I take his two little hands, and I have to say, look at daddy, and he'll, he'll do this, and I'll say, look at daddy, and he'll look at me, and I'll say, no. And he'll do it, ah! I say, Isaac, we don't do that. God is not Isaac in that situation. He's not petulant, right? He's not reacting out of anger because he doesn't get what he wants. Right? When we look at the stories of the ancient world, some of the stories we're most, we're most familiar with are like the Greek gods. So did you ever take mythology in school? Maybe, maybe you had to read Edith Hamilton's book on it in, in school back in the day. But when you read the story of the Greek gods, or even the gods of the ancient Near East, they were more like people than they were divine beings. Right? So in the ancient Near East, when you read the Babylonian creation stories like the Enuma Elish, the gods basically get together and they decide to make human beings because the gods are lazy. They don't want to work. So they make human beings to do their work for them. When you read Greek mythology, right, Zeus is constantly cheating on his wife, Hera. He's going down to earth and he's hooking up with women all over the place. And Hera, like she finds out about it, she gets angry. And what does she do? Like when Hercules is born, she sends a snake to kill him. But because he's Hercules, he takes a snake and kills it because he's Hercules. The gods are always fighting and they're trying to get one over on each other. And one god will even help a human who's, who's suffering at the anger of another god to try and get them out of a situation. But brothers and sisters, the god of the Bible does not turn a woman's head into a heap of living snakes because she dared claim to be more beautiful. When we look at Jonah, God says in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, 
when he calls Jonah, he says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Did you catch that? Call out against it, its destruction, why? Because its evil has come up before me. There's something there. Nineveh was a large and beautiful city, which is sad because of the level of wickedness present in it. A place of beautiful gardens, probably art and culture, also a place of of savagery. And the people who lived there, the Assyrians, they were ruthless conquerors who did terrible things in winning and maintaining their empire. And the Hebrew people experienced their cruelty firsthand. And the Assyrians are the ones who wind up taking the ten tribes of Israel, destroying them completely, and taking them away, never to be seen again, and then resettling in the land that they took them out of. The Assyrians, notoriously cruel. And the Hebrew people experienced that cruelty firsthand, which kind of goes a long way to explain Jonah's reticence for not wanting to go. So God, you're basically telling me, okay, let me get this straight. <laughs> They'll like flay me alive, but you want me to go there. You want me to tell them that you're coming to destroy them. Right. And what does Jonah do? He gets on a ship and he goes the other way. Might explain, eh, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe this isn't a good idea. But we find out something really interesting at the end of the story. Jonah doesn't go because he knows something about God's character. He knows something about God's nature. And we have to remember, when we think about the cruelty and the wickedness of the Assyrians, it's not a one-time thing, right? It's constant and ongoing. It's ever piling up in the eyes of God until God finally has had enough and has to act. It's very similar to what we see um, in the Old Testament where when God, God says to Abraham, look, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to send you and your descendants into another country for a time, and then I'm going to bring them back when the wickedness of the Amorites is full. Something along, I'm not quoting directly, but something along those lines. So in other words, God will be using the descendants, the numerous, the, the numerous descendants of Abraham. He's going to bring them back into the land and part of what their mission is, is going to bring God's judgment against these wicked people whose wickedness is, I kind of, I, this is just how I think, right? I kind of think of it as like a, a giant thermometer. <laughs> and there's like a level of wickedness down here. And when it gets here, it's like, oh, you're not quite there yet. And then it gets up here and there's like a little line, you know, sort of like with our fundraiser sign outside instead of a bell. God's like, uh-uh. That's just how I picture it. It's not actually like that, right? But the the point is, is that there comes a point where the wickedness of a place or a city becomes so great, their evil becomes so repellent that God says, enough is enough. So Jonah... After, the, after, you know, being spit up by the fish, he, he grudgingly obeys, and he, clair, he declares that their, their doom is upon them. And what happens? They repent. They humble themselves. 
and they are spared. This surprises and angers Jonah. We know the rest of the story. He goes out onto the hill, and he's like, I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to watch how God's going to blow this place up. And he's sitting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's like, God's wrath is coming. I told him, it's coming. And he sits on a hill, and he waits, and he waits, and nothing happens. And he doesn't get to see what he hoped to see, the destruction of his enemies. So what we see from this text, brothers and sisters, is whenever we see expressions of God's anger in the Old Testament, the expression of God's anger is always tied in with trying to bring about repentance. Heschel wrote this, the call of anger is a call to return and to be saved. And what did we hear, was it last Sunday from Joel? Return to me, return to me. Or was it Ash Wednesday? We heard that. God's anger in the Old Testament is to bring about repentance, to give people the opportunity to, re- to repent, to turn around, to be saved. The expression of God's anger in Scripture is averted by repentance. And it's averted by prayer because Jonah knows that God is good, right? The psalmist says in Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what this means for us, brothers and sisters, is that when we look at, when we read these stories in the Old Testament where it looks like God is unhinged, we often overlook what's happening in the story. We often overlook the opportunities for repentance, especially when we read the prophets, right? The whole role of the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures is to call people back to the covenant. The prophets' messages, right? You could distill them all down. It would be, hey, remember God? The God that brought you out of Egypt? The God that appeared to you on the mountain? The God that saved you? The God that you said that you were going to serve? The God whom you are in covenant with? Remember him? All this crap that you're doing over here? Knock it off. Because if you don't, this is going to happen. And it's not like that would have been a surprise to them because God even lays it out for them in the Torah, right? We, I preached on this. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. Repentance. The anger of God in the Old Testament always revolves around repentance, giving people the chance to return and to be saved. Now, We have to be very careful, I think, though, with how we apply this in our own day and our own age. Because the covenant promises that God has made with his people, particularly when we read the Old Testament, those were promises given to Israel. And we understand in the New Testament that the church is the Israel of God. That the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, that is God's holy people, right? Not a nation that appeared in 1948, 
That is not, <laughs> right? The church, the Israel of God is the church. It's us, Jews and Gentiles who have been brought together in Jesus Christ. That is the church. So we have to remember, we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, when we try to make when we try to make the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament apply to our nation, right? And you see that a lot. People will try and take things in the Old Testament, promises made to Israel, and say, oh, this is for America. Well, no, it's not for America. That was for Israel back then. And the new Israel is the church. But we also have to understand, brothers and sisters, that even nations that weren't in covenant with God like the Assyrians, like with Nineveh, God hasn't made a covenant with America. God didn't make a covenant with the Assyrians. God hasn't made a covenant with England or with India, right? God's covenant is with us, his people, the church. But that does not mean that God will continue to overlook wickedness in any place, in any part of the world. Because we understand, brothers and sisters, that scripture says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and Habakkuk, I think, says this, and I think also uh, in Isaiah, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. And we believe, ultimately, brothers and sisters, that this will result in a final judgment. At the end of time, the day of the Lord will come, when all shall be judged, all shall be brought before the Lord, and all will be made to answer for what they've done. Those of us who are in Christ will be ushered into eternal life of those who have done wickedness to everlasting damnation and death. But we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that the anger of God, the wrath of God, exists to allow people and to give people the time to repent, to turn around, to turn back to the God whose face they've slapped, to turn back to the God who calls them out of darkness and into the light of Christ. And so for us, brothers and sisters, as we turn during this time of our own fasting, of our own time of prayer, we do this because we're not afraid, or, and we do this not because we're afraid or trying to earn grace, but we're acknowledging the necessity of our own ongoing repentance because it's good for us to examine ourselves and like the psalmist who says you know try me lord see if there's anything wicked in me and lead me in your way everlasting and that's my prayer for us this lent that as we humble ourselves before the lord that he will show us what is in us that needs healing and that we will be open to that healing and to the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen.